special edition of our show, Herstory on the Rocks, with Katie and Allie. So normally it would just be Allie and I hanging out, having a few cocktails, talking about famous women in history, but sometimes we like to talk to people who are currently writing about history. We have a very special guest here with us today, Susan L. Carruthers. Welcome to the show. Thank you very much. It's a pleasure to be with you. We're so happy to have Susan here today. Susan is a professor in U.S. international history at the University of Warwick and has written five books today and probably so many articles and (laughs) so many things, introductions in other books. Today, she's here to talk with us about her newest book, Dear John, Love and Loyalty in Wartime America. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So... I am, as you say, at the University of Warwick. We don't pronounce the second W in, in British Whoa, okay. English. <laughs> but what just Greenwich? How do you say Gre- Greenwich? Greenwich. <laughs> Greenwich. Well, <laughs> interestingly enough, my, my, uh, my husband was born on Warwick Avenue in Brooklyn. So <laughs> we have a, 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 an ongoing dialogue about how this name is, yeah. is best pronounced. Uh, but now we live actually in in the town of Kenilworth, which is just outside the University of Warwick. And I have been back over in the UK. You can probably tell I'm I'm not a US citizen myself, but I did live there for a long time. So that's something else I'd want to say at the start, because as you know from the title, the book deals with romantic relationships in the US military. And it tells one particular story, which maybe we'll talk about later on, which was particularly dear to my heart, because for a very long time, at least a decade, Newark, New Jersey, the location of this story was also my adoptive hometown. So I I taught at Rutgers in their Newark campus before I came back to the UK and and took up my job at Warwick. Perfect. Well, before we get into this book, we have to get into the cocktail that Allie made for it. So this is called the Dear John Cocktail. And Allie, what are we drinking? So I based this on like some comfort flavors because I really wanted a nice breakup drink. (laughs) Um, So this is one ounce of bourbon, a half an ounce of creme de cocoa, because you got to get a little bit of that chocolate (laughs) in there, an ounce of lemon juice for that bitter taste that you have in your mouth after somebody (laughs) leaves you when you're overseas. And then of course, um, an egg white, because I wanted that crack. Yeah. <laughs> I wanted that break in there. So I'm drinking out of chip today because yes. <laughs> I haven't done dishes. So cheers. cheers. And cheers to you. I know it's late at night there. It, it, it is. I was very intrigued to see what you'd come up with cocktail wise and whether you would theme the, the drink around the imagined writer of the Dear John or, or the recipient, because I imagine they might favor rather different beverages. So. <laughs> Uh, and I think your, your your drink actually blends the two roles, perhaps. Yeah. I um, imagine the writer sitting back with a cigarette and a glass of red wine. Yes. <laughs> <laughs> I'm free. <laughs> Perfect. Um, so before we dive into uh, the, you know, real meat of the book, can we talk a little bit about the setting? Because it travels through a lot of different war times, um, mm-hmm. you know, and up through modern day. Um, so can you talk a little bit about where exactly we are and what women are doing at these different times. Okay, well, um, I think the best starting place is to to point out for listeners that the 
the very phrase, dear John, which is, of course, the, the central motif. It's the central thing that, that the book tries to unpick was a coinage of GIs in World War II. So the first public references that I was able to find come from 1942, 1943. So most of the book deals with World War II and successive US conflicts. But I do cast back from time to time, because of course, it's very clear that women did indeed end relationships with men, and they did so by writing them letters on occasion in previous conflicts. Some historians have identified Dear John's from the Civil War. They may or may not be authentic specimens, but that's true of every war ever since then, that it can often be quite hard to know if a Dear John was indeed written by a woman or if it was made up by a man or by, by men. So I, I talk a bit about World War I as well, because perhaps the most famous literary Dear John, um, a letter sent by a nurse, Agnes von Kurowski, to Ernest Hemingway when he was 19 years old, was sent in or just after World War I. But it's only with hindsight that we recognize that and call that a dear John. So, as I said, most of the book really deals with World War II and subsequent conflicts. And of course, Vietnam looms very large because during that war, it became a very standard trope that more women were writing more and more viciously worded, more devastatingly cruel dear Johns than ever before. Now, there's no way of knowing if that claim is actually true or not, but that didn't stop an awful lot of people repeating it. So it's gained a lot of traction, and we find people still in the 21st century trotting that out as, as though it's an sort of unimpeachable fact. And then I also bring the story up to date. So I talk about um, the wars in Iraq and Afghanistan. And of course, part of the story that I'm exploring in this isn't just about letter writing or about the consequences of letters. It's about the human huge role that shifting technologies have played in terms of, of sustaining relationships, sustaining connection between loved ones over there and their spouses, partners over here, the here being the United States, not here in Kenilworth, obviously. Um, and technology is, is a really pivotal part of, of my story because, of course, it makes a huge difference what technologies are available to, to foster connection or perhaps to, to speed and facilitate severance of romantic relationships. That's so interesting. And if we like dig deep into where Dear John comes from, is it the same concept of like a John Doe, right? Are we using the name John because it's such a commonly used um, you know, white male name? Well, it's a little bit hard to, to say because the the phrase itself springs from the sort of everyday practices and interactions of GIs who've been dumped. Nobody sat down and wrote a bureaucratic memo which could be neatly filed away in the National Archives at College Park or somewhere else, which would explain precisely why they had chosen to apply the term Dear John to this particular kind of female-authored letter. So the, there's a lot of urban mythology that's out there. Um, and of course, I delved into all of that. And there are different hypotheses about why this phrase and not some other phrase. One of the most common of those explanations is that, that there was an extremely popular radio series um, featuring a comedian called Irene Rich, which was called Dear John. And this was extremely popular in the late 1930s and, and in the war years. 
And it began, it had a, a sort of epistolary hook. So it always began with her narrating this sort of radio show, Dear John, dot, 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 sort of dissolve into whatever the, the dramatic conflict of, of that week's episode was. Uh, the show had nothing to do with what would subsequently be called Dear John Letters, mm-hmm. but it, it is a, a sort of widely received, widely credited um, origin story that Dear John Letters were called that because that show was so popular. But I think you're probably right that, of course, John was a phenomenally popular male name. Um, and, and it happens to be the only male name in my family. My dad was called John. My brother-in-law was called John. My nephew was called John. <laughs> His dad was called John. Um, so John resonates uh, for yeah. all sorts of different reasons. And um, I do, I think, you know, we're obviously, it's called Dear John. And we talk a lot about how these letters are written to these men. And it feels like the history of this has been kind of... Um, propaganda in a way to be like these horrible women back home I mean do you think that it's it has become this very unfair thing to you know kind of vilify these women back home for writing these breakup letters well that's certainly a piece of received wisdom or a a very stock villainization Mm -hmm. I think you're you're absolutely right which which my book does try to challenge Mm -hmm. In every war in which Dear John letters or or Dear John tapes, Dear John texts, Dear John social media posts have have been sent and received, uh, I would say the dominant way in which those communications of a relationship ended in wartime have been received, not just in military ranks. I mean, it's not surprising that, of course, male recipients and their buddies would react with forceful negative feelings about both the letters and the women who sent them. But I think civilian society more broadly has had a lot of very, very negative things to say about women who write Dear Dear John letters and and the standard characterizations of those women and their letters is that they are cowardly and cruel. It seems to be forever those two C words which get applied to Dear John letter writers. And to me, that seems to be a really reductive way of of thinking about everything that makes sustaining a romantic relationship in wartime so incredibly hard. And I try in the book in in sympathetic ways. I mean, of course, I understand why it would feel devastating, enraging, embittering, endangering to be the recipient of a dear John. So it's not that I have no sympathy or fellow feeling for for, uh, men who are who are abandoned emotionally in wartime. But I think their story is the dominant one that's been told. We know a lot because men have had a lot to say about the experience of being Gia John. But there's been far less attention paid to to women and, and certainly far less empathy shown for how hard it is to sustain romantic relationships and, and for the many factors which might cause a woman to want to end a romantic partnership with a man at war while he's away. Yeah. Well, I think it's great too that, um, you know, they're referred to as like, you know, not being very Penelope-like and you're talking about Penelope and, you know, Homer's the Odyssey and she was this great example of the wife that waited, you know, even though her husband is having all of these affairs. (laughs) I just think it's kind of ironic that we have this perfect wife who's a fictional character written by a man, you know, and um, it's just not really reflective of 
and the we complexities can, of real life. We can like move that a little farther and be like, dear King Arthur, yeah. I, Guinevere, <laughs> have met Sir Lancelot, yeah. and <laughs> I feel like your search for the Holy Grail yeah. is getting in the way of X, Y, Z. So I really, really enjoyed that your book s- started in the introduction by talking about the satire paper, The Onion, or the satire news mm-hmm. source, because it's talking about the don't ask, don't tell. And I, just because I've always just really quickly, okay, Dear John, a girl's writing a letter to break up with a guy, never thought about the LGBTQ plus connection that The Onion very quickly came up with um, when these bills and laws were changed. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I I used that as, as my opening gambit for, for a number of different reasons. Firstly, I mean, it, it it just seemed such a perfect encapsulation of, of one of the points that I want to make that in, in sort of um, at least male military war law, it's become such a standard trope that you go to war, inevitably you will get a dear John and, and this sort of mystique or mythology around getting dear John and how universal, but universal male um, experience of, of deployment that is is just everywhere in in popular culture as well as veterans storytelling and and writings and so on um and of course the dear john trope hinges around heterosexual romantic relationships that the writer is always imagined to be a woman who's who's sending this um but the the onion story just seems so perfect to me in 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 so many different ways that it, there it is that it it chooses um, in its own inimitable satirical way to to mark the end of don't ask don't tell so finally in in September of 2011 for the first time gay men lesbian women uh, bisexual um, military personnel could serve openly and how the onion marks this historic landmark event is is with a spoof story saying that the first dear john letters are arriving in iraq and afghanistan and these are being hailed with whoops of sort of civil rights glee by their their gay recipients john is writing to john ending things and this is a real breakthrough um for the lgbtq LGBTQ community. So I thought it was it was very wry. I think it's very clever, but of course it, it's also sort of needling and drawing attention to homophobia and the fact that for, for so very many decades that it was extremely hard, um, well, of course, to, to, to serve in the military at all if, if one weren't heterosexual. But also I think it, it, it draws attention to how hard it, if, if one serve but with a sort of clandestine sexual orientation how particularly challenging it was when the only modes of communication were say letter writing and when letters were being read by one's commanding officer and so on that one could only keep those connections alive through letter writing through sort of subterfuge um, and and sort of very coded ways of, of communicating love and affection and desire and so on so the story just does an awful lot of things and that's why I open with it. 
I think that's so great. And it also, it shows the, the changing times and how each war really is very individual and different, even if we're dealing with the same things, you know, on the surface. And mm -hmm. I also, I thought your section on the Vietnam War was so interesting because one of the things you mentioned was that a lot of POWs had uh, Rip Van Winkle syndrome, which I'd never thought about. And, you know, they go into these camps and they come out and America was a totally different place. I mean, you have the great picture of the guy coming home and his kids are coming and his girl's in this short skirt and his wife is in this very mm -hmm. cute outfit and you wouldn't know that she had divorced him while he was away. But, <laughs> um, but I'm very curious as to how um, women's place, especially in the Vietnam War, did people blame women divorcing men overseas on the women's movement in this time? Because obviously women had been doing it mm. the whole time, you know, in every war, you know, up until this point, basically. <laughs> but was did that kind of give it a different tinge to it? Well, suddenly, in, in that story that you're just referring to, specifically about returning POWs, so... <laughs> It's it's worth remembering that that some of those guys had been captured very early on. They were mostly officers. They were mostly airmen. They were almost all white, sort of elite men who were often sort of beholden to conservative patriarchal values and and all the rest of it. And when they come back, having in some cases been in North Vietnamese camps for five years, more than that in, in, in some cases, clearly there is a huge change between the United States they might have left in 1965 or, or even earlier and, and the country that they come back to in 1973. And, and I, I, I mean, I, I did think it was, it was really intriguing to, to find that the Pentagon busily compiled this sort of manual of here are all the important things that you know that was everything from miniskirts to the Apollo landing yeah. to MLK's assassination and all rolled into one, here's what you need to, to get back up to speed. So around those returnees, that was where the sort of strongest social commentary seemed to come about, that their marriages were allegedly breaking down at a faster rate than any other veterans of the Vietnam War. And women's lib definitely got a lot of flack and was, was sort of identified as, as the key culprit for that, um, rightly or wrongly. Mm -hmm. In terms of, of the sort of larger landscape, I mentioned earlier that, that the idea became a, a real sort of commonplace of, of commentary on the Vietnam War then and, and thereafter, that, that women were sending more and more callous, more calculatedly vicious dear Johns to, to men serving in, in Vietnam. And the man who first popularized that idea was a, a very prominent forensic psychiatrist called Dr. Emmanuel Tane, who pops up in, in a number of places, as you'd have seen in, in the book. And, and he writes this, this paper for a professional psychiatric association called the Dear John Syndrome in Vietnam. And this is where he makes the claim and it's picked up by the press. I mean, usually the press, I don't think, attend <laughs> meetings of, of psychiatric associations or, or give prominent billing to papers that are delivered in, in these rather arcane settings. But because he was making this very incendiary claim and because it seemed to resonate, this idea just gets sort of picked up and, and repeated and repeated. And then often if there is a footnote, it, it invariably is, is to this guy, Emmanuel Tane. And, and Tane wasn't blaming women's lib 
quite so much as, as he related this phenomenon to anti-war sentiment. So he claimed that, you know, in, in wars gone by, like in World War II, because this was the good war and there was so much sort of social consensus around the necessity of fighting the good fight, that, that women or girlfriends, fiancés, whose, whose men were away at war, enjoyed the validation of being sort of military spouses or fiancés or in the orbit of, of that good war. Whereas in Vietnam, obviously, the whole national landscape has, has changed. But I didn't find any evidence to support that claim. I mean, I, it, it seems on the surface to be quite a seductive one, that you know, women are, are sort of getting swept into anti-war activism. They're starting to question national purposes, what is the military doing, they might well be sort of reading or seeing on the news, um, breaking stories about atrocities and so on. But I, I have not been able to substantiate that correlation. And, and to me, it's a really interesting thing, because he, 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 in making that claim, he really politicizes the phenomenon of, of Dear John letter writing, whereas we would typically associate the idea that the personal is political with second wave feminism. And there he is sort of <laughs> also, I mean, he does say in terms of the cruelty, it's not just, you know, that they've been converted to anti-war feeling, but, you know, there's something in the air that's just the United States is a more cruel, more callous kind of a, a place by the late 1960s. And one of the other things that he, he said in this essay, which is quite remarkable, was that some women weren't just sending Dear John letters, they were recording themselves on tapes. So tape recorders were the new big technology of the Vietnam War. And they were recording themselves sort of in flagrante with new boyfriend and then sending these pornographic recordings to John in Vietnam to let him know how well and truly dumped and overtaken in her affections he was. And I would have expected, I mean, having listened to hundreds of hours of veterans oral histories and, and read everything I could get my hands on, that, that somewhere or other I would have found some other reference to that phenomenon. I found nothing. Mm -hmm. So <laughs> I, I don't quite know what to do with that, but it, it seems to me that like a lot of, of Dear John Received Wisdom, we, we have to approach this with some skepticism. Mm. And when people are sitting down and they're reading your work, what are some of the main themes that you want them to pull from it and kind of take away as they're reading? Okay, well, we've covered some of them already. I, I guess that the single biggest one, which I, I touched on earlier, is that I want readers to come away perhaps with a more textured appreciation of how hard it is to stay connected, to stay in a healthy, happy, mutually satisfying romantic relationship when one or in, in more recent conflicts, perhaps both partners are deployed far from home in situations which often involve severe danger, risk to life, to limb, to mental health, to well-being, with the incredible toll that that takes for, for both parties. And this comes back to the, the point that, that you, you touched on before, that so often empathy has been channeled so insistently and exclusively towards men and their 
sort of emotional needs, their emotional challenges and how awful it must be to experience emotional rejection when one's deployed. And, and I think that's really distracted us from how hard it is for, for, for women to sustain relationships. Of course, in some cases, I, I mean, another thing I, I want to stress, and this is perhaps particularly true for, for Vietnam, is, is the reminder of just how young many of the participants were. I mean, we're talking about servicemen whose average age is 19 years old. And I think we might, might sensibly remind ourselves how, how many teenage relationships survive the transition from high school to college or one or other party going away. We don't need elaborate accounts of anti-war activism or second wave feminism mm -hmm. to recall that actually young relationships can be very fragile. People also can get into them with very different expectations about the level of commitment what it means to the, the two parties can be radically divergent. And some of the very poignant things that I encountered spoke to exactly that theme, that clearly a young woman had, had entered into a correspondence. I mean, particularly in, in World War II, we have to remember, and this relates to the central story that I tell in the book about two young, young people who'd never actually met in person. Uh, and... So for some women, they start writing perhaps more out of a sense of patriotic obligation because they're constantly being bombarded with remind, reminders that letter writing is perhaps the preeminent civic duty of, of women on the home front. Yeah, you might join the wax, you might do some war work of some kind, but, but on top of that, you also need to be writing ceaselessly with endless good cheer and affection to your man or, or indeed to several men in uniform. And of course, some, some young women who, who, who sort of took up their pen and fueled by a sense of a kind of patriotic commitment to, to keeping up the morale of, of young men overseas had no notion that they were actually in the young man's mind, the recipient of, of their letters, entering into some kind of unbreakable romantic covenant. For them, it was something very different. And, and so these sort of miscommunications, really divergent ideas about what kind of reciprocity does or doesn't exist and so on, whether a purely epistolary relationship might, when he comes back, turn into something else. There's just so much complexity there. Mm -hmm. um, and I think we owe it to, to women who have written letters um, and whether they have sustained those relationships or ended them to appreciate how hard that business is always uh, across all of these conflicts and regardless of whatever technologies they may or may not have had. And something that I, I found, I mean, I, I taught quite a lot of, of veterans when I was teaching at Rutgers. And of course, I've encountered a lot of veterans in the course of, of my work. The, the veterans of, of 21st century war have, have often said to me is that that the technologies that we all now take for granted, so cell phones, social media, the internet, everything of the digital age has actually made things so much harder. So things that on the surface you might think intuitively, well, hey, that's great. Now you can call home from Iraq or Afghanistan. You can go on Skype, FaceTime, whatever, actually... Um, makes what for, for many deployed personnel was the thing that make, made deployment bearable was compartmentalization, the ability to keep home life, being a loving parent, 
being a romantically committed partner possible was that that could exist in its own sort of sealed box. So letter writing was actually a much better way of, of sustaining connection than things that, that place relentless pressure on, on partners to be connected all the time. Mm-hmm. That's actually quite heartbreaking. <laughs> well, it's funny because I uh, I feel that. I mean, I left home for six months and moved to another country and my relationship with my boyfriend, like, it was like, oh, we could talk to each other whenever. So it didn't feel very pressured to, you know, to really make time for it. And um, it's fine. I never wrote him a letter, but I wrote my current husband a letter <laughs> while I was over there. And... <laughs> But um, everything went well. (laughs) But I would intriguing. (laughs) But I would love to talk about the physical letters. So it seems to me like you know, if I would were to get a breakup letter in war, I would like crumple it up and throw it away. How do we still have some of these letters? What happened to them, and how do we have access to them? Well, the simple answer to that is that we really don't. So. I think this is maybe one reason why no one else has written my book before me. Of course, I'm very glad that that no one else wrote Dear John before I came along and and had this idea. And and I rather naively perhaps set out thinking when I, I was seized with the idea that I wanted to investigate wartime relationships and, and particularly to think about this most resonant, notorious of of wartime missives that I would be able to find perhaps not troves, not thousands, but but some. And it was a very quick path to realization that I was just not going to to find a whole lot of of Dear John letters. And Interestingly, I, I wrote to many archivists, um, you know, at various military archives in particular. Uh, there were all sorts of, of archives, some of them in, in university special collections and, and elsewhere that, that have dedicated war letters collections. And, and a number of people wrote back to me initially saying, oh, I'm sure we must have some. Because, of course... Dear John letters, they are everywhere. They're memorialized in pop culture, in song, in in movies, TV, novels, and all the rest of it. Uh, but but what they actually had really was just this sort of phantom Dear John theme that sort of haunts the collection. And on, on deeper digging, they, they came up empty-handed. So the book is really in many ways, a a book about storytelling. It's about the things that mostly men, but also some women have had to say about Dear John letters um, and and how those stories circulate and the incredible variety of stories, not just stories that are angry or outraged or heartbroken or grief-stricken, but sometimes very funny and humorous Dear John stories. Um, so, so and coming back to the actual letters and their existence or otherwise, I mean, one, one strand of, of that storytelling by servicemen, by veterans, is, is precisely about the many different ways in which Dear Johns are quickly consigned to oblivion, because you're right, of course, mostly. I mean, when I stop and thought, of course I wasn't going to find legions of Dear John letters in the archives because they're ripped up, they're crumpled, they're defaced in all manner of creative or 
or, or obscene ways. And we have a lot of stories about that. Um, and, and actual Dear John's very few, and, and I mean, even fewer that, that I could validate to my satisfaction that I, I knew for sure that a woman had really and truly written this letter in those words, as opposed to stories that often have the whiff of urban legend or the apocryphal about them. And, and of course, there are a lot of those. So the central Dear John that I, I spin a lot of different themes from we do indeed know that a woman sent to her boyfriend that she'd never met. So this was a V-mail, V for victory mail, which was World War II's big innovation in speeding the flow of mail. So paper mail. Um, it was a standard printed sheet, which the government issued. It was very cheap for civilians. It was free for service personnel. It was then uh, microfilmed and, and the films were sent overseas for development at the other end. So a young woman from my former adoptive hometown of Newark, New Jersey, in a fit of rage, which I think was thoroughly justified because of the outrageous things her, her boyfriend she'd never met had been writing to her, told him to go to hell. And he was so, he was somewhere in Britain at the time. And he was so appalled and outraged to receive this that he sent it to Yank, which is the Army's weekly magazine. And Yank saw fit to publish it. And they did that in, in facsimile form. So uh, the, the V-Mail stationery has a, a place at the top right-hand corner where the sender has to write his or her name and address. So there was Anne's name and her address in Newark, New Jersey for everyone to see. And she received well over 100 pieces of mail from random strangers, mostly men, but also some women, including a young British girl who wanted a pen pal and liked horses, <laughs> who <laughs> happened to have got her hands on a copy of Yank and <laughs> thought she would write to Anne. Um, and that, that's kind of a, a nice British angle to all of this, but it also alerts us to the, the incredible range and variety of, of, of mail that she received. And she kept all of that. And um, those letters that she received, but not the original V-mail, the V-mail we know about only because Sans um, sent, sent it to Yank. He, he burnt all of her letters and <laughs> seemed to take some delight in telling her that he was destroying all of her mail. Although in, in Sam's defense, often commanding officers did tell men to, to get rid of mail for security purposes. And it's cumbersome when it, it, it amasses after a while. So I was very drawn to this story and uh, worked my way through the many, many letters she'd received. And, and I used them in the book to illustrate various points about letter writing etiquette, mm -hmm. how young men and women sort of negotiated um, the, the sense that they all had in, in World War II, certainly that there the were things that were right and things that were wrong about encountering someone else by letter for the first time. And I was particularly sort of drawn to one rather endearing young man who was also from New Jersey who, who writes very self-deprecatingly about himself and how he looks as though he's permanently eating a banana. <laughs> he has this funny upturned nose. <laughs> and, and when Anne doesn't write back promptly enough, he, he persists and he sends her another letter, Christmas card, Valentine. And she obviously did write back to him. So his persistence paid off. But 
But um, if he was hoping for a date when he got back to Newark, New Jersey, he was out of luck because she, well, maybe, spoiler alert. <laughs> Should I reveal the big reveal? Or, or leave it <laughs> I, I think that your choice to make that the central story was done so wonderfully because you you were juggling so many really difficult points in American history mm-hmm. for um, not only the wars on the home front, which were really notable during World War II and then notable during Vietnam, but also for the people serving overseas. So I just think you did such a great job of illustrating it without making it textbooky. Yeah. It was very nice. Well, I also love that you, there's like a picture of the go to hell message <laughs> in the book. Yeah. It's very cute. Everybody wrote in cursive back then. So it's like very lovely looking. Like, but it, go to hell. Go to hell. <laughs> well, and, and I purposely chose one. So a, a number of the, these random strangers who wrote to Anne telling her what they thought about her go to hell female annotated it. So they, they clipped it. I mean, imagining somehow that this wouldn't have gotten back to her in, in Newark. Little did they know. Uh, many, many people were keen to, to send her the clipping. Um, and, and some of them defaced it, whether they were making sort of humorous endorsements of it or expressing their their shock and and outrage about it so (laughs) yes it was before there was (laughs) yeah so very interesting how how that got out into the the wider world yeah all right well we have been just so pleased to talk to you about this book there's so much more in the book that we didn't even get to talk about so everyone should go get a copy Um, It's just a fascinating way to look at American history, wartime history. It's just fantastic. Um, So where can people find you and the book and everything else that you've written? Okay, well, they can find me on my website, which is susanlcarruthers.com. And you can even buy the book directly from the website. Um, The the link, the buy the book uh, link on the homepage of my my personal website will take you to the Cambridge University Press um, catalog. And that's the press that's that's publishing this. And and Cambridge have been fantastic. So I'll just give a little plug to the press. and you you can buy it in all the usual places where books can be bought. Although it's not officially out till January the 27th, you can go on Amazon right now today and, and, and get a copy very quickly. Um, Barnes & Noble, you know, wherever you buy your books from online, if, if you do that. Or you can go to your, your local independent bookstore and, and ask them to order a copy because it is out there. Perfect. Well, this has been such a pleasure to talk to you. We can't wait for you to write more stuff so we can interview (laughs) you once again. Um, And we hope you get a good night's sleep. Sorry for keeping you up super late.
been listening to Her Story on the Rocks. We are independently produced by 1986 Entertainment and proudly recorded in Baltimore, Maryland. If there's a woman in history you would like us to cover, you can email us at herstoryontherocks at gmail.com. You can also message us on Twitter or Instagram. We post all of our cocktail recipes on Tuesdays so that you can go get all the supplies you need and drink along with us. See you next week. Bye.